This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. When asked, the vast majority of Australians want to have a say and some control over the ends of their lives. And this includes choosing where we die and the kinds of supports around us. We want to have the chance to say goodbye to loved ones and be able to avoid prolonged suffering through the dying process. However, as outlined in Rodney Symes' new book, too few of us will have our wishes realised. Rodney is a high-profile doctor who's been advocating for the rights of the dying, the terminally ill and those with what he calls advanced incurable illness for many, many years. He published A Good Death a decade ago and now he's followed that book up with Time to Die published by Melbourne University Press. In it, Rodney writes in heartbreaking detail about the suffering some people experience as they die and contrasts it with experiences of others who have had more control over how they go and it's really great to have you with us Rodney and welcome to Triple R. Pleased to be here. And there's nothing more inevitable than death, um, but we spend so little time talking about it. Um, I wonder why you think that is. Well, most people are frightened of it. Um, although it's inevitable, uh, fear as to how we will die, I think, is really the problem. Um, for most people who've lived a long and full life, uh, the attitude is is different for people who are dying when they're young, uh, with family and children, that is a real, real tragedy. Nobody would argue that. But if you lived as I have to 81, I'm, I'm what I'd call ready to die. If, if my doctor told me I had inoperable cancer, I'd say, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And I would certainly at my age not be looking for radical medical solutions I, I think people get carried away with false hope as to being able to be cured or even just with chemotherapy getting a few more months of life I see from my own perspective as a doctor treating many many patients with cancer it's not the length of time that you have to live it's the quality of the life that you have that's important If there's one thing that really stands out to me from, from reading your book Rodney it's that having control over the end of, of one's life is really more important ultimately than actually making the decision to end your life at any particular point in time. And there's a there's a line towards the beginning where you say that having euthanasia drugs in your possession, but having been administered them to use at a time of your choosing is like having the keys to the fire escape. You have the knowledge that you can get out if if you want to. And I wonder if you can talk about that that aspect of having control over when you finally go. Yeah. Well, most people when they're when they are facing the end of their life, they will usually have some uh, physical symptoms which can be very difficult to control. Pain is an obvious one, although uh, as a profession, particularly palliative care, does pretty well managing most pain, not all of it, but most of it. But there are other physical symptoms like breathlessness, weakness, um, nausea, vomiting, incontinence, a whole heap of very uh, degrading symptoms. But what you can't see is the psychological and the existential impact of of that journey that's in front of a person. Um, And the psychological aspect comes from not having control. There's a fear, even a terror, as to what lies in front of people. Uh, They realise that they're not going to 
make the decisions in current medical practice. Doctors make most of the decisions. Patients have to agree to them, of course. But although we have a, a legal right to refuse treatment, we don't have a right to request treatment. So that if things are getting really, really out of control, you know, the suffering is becoming too severe, you can't say now, uh, I think this is enough, I want to end. So that psychological suffering is really a crushing phenomenon. And what I've learned over 25 years of counselling people, many, many, a couple of thousand, is that if you can relieve that psychological distress, you take a huge burden off people and their quality of life improves quite dramatically. And it allows them to go forward with some confidence towards the end. It allows them to use that limited time that they've got left as productively as possible rather than being crushed there enlivened Mm -hmm. and above that psychological suffering which I think most people can understand there's what we call existential suffering people get confused about this word they think of Jean-Paul Sartre and some you know deep philosophical uh, matter it really just comes from the word existence existence existential and this relates to the things that make our existence worthwhile and having control is is one of those existential phenomena feeling that you're a burden to members of your family when you're no longer able to look after yourself and you're you're creating burdens for them even although those burdens are usually taken up by family willingly it still doesn't remove the sense of being a burden and that's what most people have they we don't like to impose problems on other people most of us we try to be selfless rather than selfish and there's two things, two things that are really, really important in terms of quality of life as we go to the end. The, the two P's. First one, having a sense of purpose is important in having quality of life. If you've got no purpose, life becomes aimless and, and, and has no quality. And the second is the ability to have pleasure. And that too uh, is commonly lost once a person becomes bed-bound, perhaps incontinent, there's no pleasure in that existence. Um, there's a social, a very a beautiful book by an American sociologist describes a social death accompanying a physical death. And that's very, very true. That is often what happens to people. And that's a tragedy. And it leads to a very low, if anything, no quality of life. And, so, and I think none of us, you know, all of those things that you speak about, right, straight away, I mean, we're human, aren't we? We can relate to what you're saying. Mm. And and words matter in this discussion. This idea of the, the words you use often are um, taking control. Uh, but there's other words that are, are I suppose, more um, provocative. You know, I mean, euthanasia is, is an, a really fraught area in, in public discourse and, and, and so forth. And I wonder whether choosing certain kinds of words, whether it's easier for people to relate to control rather than something that is more legalese, I suppose. Well, I don't use the word euthanasia. Uh, To me, it's a bastard of a word. It hasn't got a sort of established meaning. It's used in veterinary terms where animals are are relieved very often more compassionately than we do with with humans. Uh, It's used in relation to what the Nazis did. Fundamentally, in the way it's used in in, in um, philosophical and medical sense, it means a doctor delivering a lethal injection. 
Now, I'm frankly opposed to that, basically because two things. It's unnecessary in the vast majority of circumstances. And secondly, it puts the responsibility onto the doctor for an action which I believe is the responsibility of the individual. Uh, I prefer to use the term assisted dying, which uh, you as an individual control the dying process. I'm assisting you. But assisted dying means that the doctor supports the individual uh, right through the process and provides a medication which that person can self-administer. So you see, nothing will happen unless that person makes that person makes a decision, not the doctor. And, and over many years, you've um, been involved with patients through counselling, which I'd love you to speak more about. But you also speak of a benign conspiracy in in the courts and in in policing and so forth to not prosecute doctors who support patients through this process. Yes, um, <clears throat> my experience would show that that's true. Uh, I came to it gradually when I first began helping people. I was shit scared. Uh, I would <laughs> go to visit somebody. I'd park my car 400 metres away so my car wouldn't be seen outside their, their home. Uh, I rang people from public phone boxes. Uh, I was worried my phone might be tapped. But over time I realised, and I made some provocative challenges to the coroner's court, um, I realised that really the authorities weren't that interested. I came to the conclusion that unless somebody made a complaint, that would be a relative, made a complaint about somebody who died, the authorities simply uh, went through the process, the coroner would go through the process using the police of, in, of making inquiries, but, <coughs> but they had no real thought of prosecution. Eventually I proved this theory in a way because I admitted in 2014 that I'd given Steve Guest Nembutel. He, his autopsy showed he died of Nembutel and I told the police that and <laughs> very interesting interview the very nice police sergeant said you want to be prosecuted don't you and I said well if, if it has to be it has to be and he said I don't think you'll be prosecuted there's not enough evidence even though I'd admitted <laughs> completely to, to what I'd done and so I do believe that the coroner, the police, the DPP, they don't sit down in a con conspiratorial way and say, well, we're not going to do this. I think it's just an unwritten uh, position that they all come to, that provided there's no evidence that a doctor has acted maliciously or for financial gain or in an unethical way, uh, they just will let these things go through to the keeper. Now, that's that's fine except that that's, no trans, that's not transparent. Well, I was going to say it makes people uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, as a society, we want things to be transparent. Exactly. And we want to know that every <clears throat> dying person or every person with incurable illness, are, it, what, what they're going through and the medical support that they're getting is going to be, as you say, ethical mm. and, and compassionate mm. and all of those things. Mm. I was interested as well in your book where you, you talk about, I guess, your, your journey as a, as a medical professional in, in coming to the current position that you hold around medically assisted dying. And you've come to, to believe that it's not simply or just those who are weeks or months away from death who should be eligible to, to be assisted to, to die, but those with severe incurable illnesses as well who may be quite a long way out from death but still face quite a lot of suffering in their day-to-day -day life. I wonder if you can talk about that, that 
that journey and how you came to that position? Yes. Well, firstly, um, the initial people who came to me would have been people dying of cancer and, and some neurological diseases. And they're the typical people who, in the Netherlands, for example, where they have a law, they were the, the initial people. Um, and it's generally very easy to see the suffering that they have. It's severe physical suffering plus the psychological and existential. But over time, more and more people came who had chronic incurable illnesses. And also there was a very large component of people who actually were frail and elderly. Uh, I kept records from about 1990 of the counselling work that I did, and I've analysed those, and those figures are in the book. And at least half of the people who would come to me for advice, information, conversation, were not people who were terminally ill. And, of course, suffering is not confined to people who are terminally ill. Um, You can have a disease, for example, like multiple sclerosis. You can be virtually totally paralysed, incontinent, completely dependent, and yet you can live for some years in that situation. Similarly, somebody who's had a profound stroke, completely paralysed, can't get out of bed, can't speak. Um, People with chronic respiratory failure, chronic cardiac failure, heart failure, breathlessness, fatigue, pain, uh, and this can go on in a fluctuating manner again for years there are people with chronic pain that is simply unrelievable as a profession we deal quite well with acute pain but chronic pain is very difficult for the medical profession to deal with the opioids which are very good for acute pain if you take them in a long term fashion uh, they tend to lose their effectiveness Uh, side effects can be a chronic problem and uh, it's just very difficult to treat chronic pain. There are a lot of people out there, for example, people with chronic rheumatoid arthritis, they've had this disease for years. It affects multiple joints. I've seen people, every damn joint in their body is in acute pain and they can't move without severe pain. And yet they're not dying. Rodney Symes with us and we're speaking to him about his latest book called Time to Die and... I think, Rodney, as as we speak, I mean, I, I keep coming back this, to this idea of having control because um, making decisions like this about other people is, is where I think most of us feel uncomfortable. And yet at the moment, uh, we need to speak to our doctors, our GPs or counsellors about our, our dying wishes. We're encouraged even to, to put together documents like advanced health directives in this area. But... I mean, how do we? How is our medical professionals sort of faring in this area? Do we spend enough time counselling people about death? I don't think so. Um, I've come to my position over, you know, twenty-five years. I've had a vast experience which most doctors don't have. It's one of the reasons I've written this book because I have, I think, what's probably a unique experience in Australia, and I thought it'd be a shame if if this information wasn't put out there. See, the fact, although I've come to the conclusion that, that, that there's this benign conspiracy, most other doctors don't have this experience, so they're still, they're still very worried. And most doctors are fearful <coughs> that if they go down a path towards discussing end of life and how it might happen, and they're, they're entering what they think is very dangerous territory. And so there's, there's great discrimination in what is available to patients. You know, you might get some reasonable help and advice and maybe even assistance from your doctor but you won't 
because uh, your doctor's got a different moral attitude or just doesn't have quite your courage. Equally well, I find, and I think this is absolutely shocking discrimination, that the people who mostly come to me come from um, the eastern suburbs and they're people who are better educated, they're people who read more, they're people who are more adept at making connections. Very, very few people come to me for advice from the western suburbs and northwestern suburbs uh, and I think that's that's uh, absolutely appalling these people should have equal rights um, and maybe they don't want the assistance, I don't know but I think it's just that they're not fully aware uh, and what we desperately need is a law which applies to everybody, gives everybody an option. With respect to the healthcare directives uh, this is a form of document in which you can state quite clearly when you're competent what treatment you do or don't want as you go towards the end of your life and you have treatment, you have condition which can't be resolved um, I'm very pleased to say that the current government has passed legislation uh, earlier uh, last year called the Advanced uh, Treatment and Planning Bill uh, Advanced Planning and Treatment Bill which has finally legislated, given advanced care directives, legal status. Previously, you could write one, but it didn't, wasn't actually and that's And that was your experience. I mean, you write about it many times in Time to Die that uh, people have their wishes, they're well known in their families, and when it comes to palliative care, they go in, um, become institutionalised in, in um, a, a retirement, um, a um, aged care facility or a palliative care facility, and those directives aren't respected but now now things are changing yes i think they well they must be respected now um previously they were in a sort of a limbo state some doctors would uh, palliative care by and large is very supportive of them and will will recognize them but all they do is allow you to refuse treatment um the medical profession due to the in many ways fantastic changes that have occurred over the last half century just amazing the things that have happened um went into a phase where the default position for the medical profession was to treat treat everything if there was a treatment available you would get it no matter what your views were of the matter no matter that it might be prolonging a life which was relatively futile or the treatment really wasn't going to get any very positive result that's changed, and one of the real reasons it's changed is the development of respect for autonomy in the medical profession. This is a relatively recent thing. Doctors used to be godlike when I graduated 60 years ago nearly. Um, doctor knew. Doctor knew best. Doctor told you what to do, and most people didn't complain. They didn't ask any questions. But gradually there's developed this respect for your autonomy. That's your right to make decisions about your own health and, and that's fantastic and the vast majority of doctors now fall into respecting that so the idea of a person refusing treatment uh, grows out of that and um, most doctors respect that you write also in your book and, and refer to international examples of where medically assisted dying has been legalised, such as the Netherlands and other places around the world as well. And we have a, a conscience vote here in Victoria coming up uh, towards the end of this year, I understand it, on, on proposed legislation to make it legal in Victoria. But there are people, I mean, it's a very divisive issue, and there are detractors who argue things like the slippery slope argument that this might lead to people being administered um, a drug that can end their life when they may just be depressed or something like that. And there's also 
of arguments around people feeling like a burden on their family if they're in the final stages of life or have a very severe illness and, and may want to or decide to win their life to, to alleviate that, that stress on their family. Are there international examples that, that you've seen that have that kind of really robust legal framework in place to make sure any of those concerns that people have wouldn't be realised in the Australian context? Well, <clears throat> the, the framework of safeguards has been derived largely out of the Netherlands, Belgium, where they've passed legislation. It's been working for... Uh, 15 years or more but equally well in the Netherlands practiced outside of the law but with the the acceptance of law uh, so the safeguards there have been able to be tested in practice for many years the fundamental thing is that the law there sets out criteria that the doctor must address uh, before he makes a decision to support anybody and these are uh, very, very important. Firstly, that the person must have an incurable illness causing severe suffering. But equally well, the individual is the judge of the suffering. The doctor's role is not to say, well, you've got intolerable suffering. You say you've got intolerable suffering. My role as a doctor is to say, yes, you've got a condition and circumstances which will make that perfectly reasonable. Why should I question that? If you come to me with a pain in your big toe from an ingrowing toenail and ask for assistance, I'll say, mm, something funny here. <laughs> that's not proportionate. That's, that's not... Most people wouldn't think that was intolerable. Um, next, the doctor has to assess your state of mind, that you're competent to make a decision. Competence simply means... And everybody in law has got competence unless it's proved otherwise. So they've got to be able to say, yes, you understand exactly what you're doing. You know the consequences of what you're asking for. And you've got the capacity, the mental capacity to make a decision. Next, they have to assess your state of mind with respect to depression or any psychological illness uh, that might be affecting your decision-making capacity. Now, people, if they're dying badly, may very well have a degree of depression. Depressed mood is very common, of course. If you're dying and you're dying with a lot of suffering, now, most people are not laughing with joy. But the doctor's job is to see that that state of mind is not influencing the decision. Um, there's got to be certainty that you're not under duress from anybody else so that you are not trying to persuade him that it would be a good idea if he ended his life. So these safeguards are in place uh, and it imposes the duty on the doctor to, to look after those things. Now, doctors actually, in fact, do most of these things every day in practice. It's not as though they're, they're difficult concepts. But secondly, there's a second doctor who must also examine the patient, study all the records, and agree entirely with the first doctor that these conditions are met. And, uh, I mean, we, we need to finish up soon, Rodney, but uh, at the beginning uh, of our conversation I said that most of us, and it's really a high number of Australians when asked, will say they want control, they want to have a say uh, over the end of their life and they don't want to suffer and we don't um, want to die badly, all of these things. And many of us want to die at home and that very few of us do, in fact, end up dying at home. But I, I wonder... You and Andrew Denton and many others have been pushing for change in this area for a long time. Do you think there'll be a time at which uh, 
one, we, we want these things, but then two, we actually can achieve this at end of life that we could have some say, well, more say over the end of our life. Yes, I'm sure we will. 85% in polls, 80 to 85% of the people want to have this, not that 80, 85% would want to use it. And in fact, in, in countries where it's, a, it's possible, it's only a small percentage, three up maybe 5% at most in countries like uh, states like Oregon and countries like Switzerland. It's not more than 1% of people. So it's for the people who are really... Most people won't take advantage of this law and it's passed, but it, you see, it gives enormous comfort to those people who are going towards knowing that it's, it's possible is huge protection. The, the government will be debating a bill in the second half of the year of the parliament. The government is going about a very, very careful and cautious process to develop the legislation. They're tending towards a bill which will allow only for people with a terminal illness. This is one of the reasons why I wrote this book, to put forward the argument for advanced incurable illness, because the issue is suffering, not the illness that you have, not how close you are to dying. It's the relief of suffering is the reason why I uh, want to try and help people. My attitude is that I'm trying to help people to go as far with their life as possible. I'm not trying to persuade anybody to end their life, but I want to provide a person with that option if they feel that that's necessary. Rodney Syme, um, thank you so much for coming in to Triple R. It's um, been really fascinating speaking with you. Time to Die, his, his latest book, and uh, as uh, we've mentioned, he's worked counselling people uh, with incurable illnesses but also who are dying for many years now and a lot is happening in the space in Victoria and if it's something that you're passionate about or you want to learn more about, there's lots of information that you can access even via the government these days. It, over the summer, I spent a lot of time at Phillip Island and uh, spoke a lot to some some of the rangers down there about the work they've been doing over many years to manage ferals, uh, particularly foxes, but also cats on the island. And they've had some pretty amazing success. They've um, been able to remove all but about two foxes and uh, many feral cats have also uh, gone to God, I suppose you put it that way. And they're also introducing down there strict new cat control measures uh, that have been put in place for domestic pets to, I suppose, reduce the, the um, threat of more cats becoming feral on the island and this is uh, one success story for the management of feral cats and other pests um, but scientists are learning all more all the time about how these animals threaten native wildlife and it's an area that Dr Bronwyn Haradsky knows very well. She's been studying feral animals in the field and joins us now. She's a research fellow at the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. It's really good to see you Bronwyn and as I said um, over the summer I did pay quite a bit of attention to what's happening on Phillip Island with regards to pest management because it is a nature island. There's penguins and shearwaters and all these sort of iconic species down there, but they are also an island. And I wonder if they're kind of special in that regard, that they can manage feral pests in a way that maybe other parts of Victoria can't. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, Phillip Island is a really important place in terms of conservation significance so it's home to a whole bunch of um, important seawaters, uh, seabird species such as little penguins and shearwaters and hooded plovers and they've been 
leading a very impressive pest management program down there with fox control and now really also focusing on the feral cat populations. It's always much easier to manage pest populations in somewhere where there's a boundary. Either you've built a great big feral proof fence, um, which can be very expensive to do, or you've got ocean surrounding your... Um, like Tasmania. Island. I mean, Tasmania, yeah. you know, we've had lots of stories about fox sightings in Tasmania, many of which haven't borne out, but being able to control what comes to your island is... Control your boundaries. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, this means that islands are often home for many of our threatened species that we've lost off the mainland of Australia because we can better protect the species that remain there. And I guess a lot of people would understand that there'd be an issue with with foxes and that they'd be quite a pest in terms of killing a lot of uh, native wildlife. But how big of a problem is it in uh, the feral cat population in Victoria? So feral cats are actually thought to be a threat to more of our native mammal species than foxes. Foxes are very well known as a pest and they definitely are. I've spent a lot of time researching them. But feral cats are thought to have contributed to the extinction of at least 20 of our native mammal species and are an ongoing threat to another 80-odd native mammals as well as a large number of birds and reptiles. Um, They're capable of bringing down quite big prey, so male feral cats can grow five, six, seven, even seven kilos in the wild and they can bring down, say, a five-kilogram wallaby and then they can kill a large number of smaller prey per night. We think there's between... 2 million and 6 million feral cats in Australia and the number will go up and down with rainfall so when it's a good year you get they get capable of breeding very rapidly and so you get big spikes in populations Mm. Gee and I I suppose when it comes to managing if we just pick out foxes and cats uh, is one easier to manage than the other or they're both challenging in their own way? Historically, foxes have been easier to control both, I guess, technically and also legislatively. So they're listed as a pest animal in Victoria. So you're actually obliged to control them if you have them on your land. And they're more, they're more scavenging. And so they're more likely to take baits um, from the wild and probably are easier to trap. Whereas feral cats really like hunting live prey. And so they can be more difficult to target. You can't herd them. You, you can't herd cats. Herding cats can be a little bit challenging. Well, there's that, but also, I mean, can they be put on a pest registry if people keep them in their backyards as well as them being... Um out there living their own life? Yeah, so recently there's been some really good progress in bringing in cat for curfews in different shires and I think on Phillip Island they're advocating for better, more responsible pet ownership as well. And it benefits both the wildlife and the farm animals because cats can host diseases that affect both humans and wildlife and it's safer for your pet cat as well. So what methods are there for for controlling the the cat population then given those difficulties? Uh, There's been a lot of research recently into some alternative baiting approaches um, with a new and more humane bait um, they're also you can trap them and shoot them and you can fence them out of areas and then the, recently there's been some really innovative work happening to do with um, one approach called toxic trojans so where they actually insert a poison into the native animal in a capsule that doesn't hurt the animal but if the feral cat eats it then the cat um, either becomes very sick or actually dies and because cats are hunting specialists so they'll target particular individual animals um, that can help take out the animals from the population that are most damaging Gee, um, that's not, is, is that controversial that sort of approach um it's very much in the experimental stage at this at the moment um there's another grooming trap being developed which is able to recognize cats when they walk past the camera sensor and it squirts a poison under the fur of the cat and then the cat licks it off which gets you around the issue of 
attracting kites to taking up baits, which may fluctuate with food availability. So I know on Phillip Island they're really focusing on trapping and controlling the cats during winter when the shearwater populations aren't there because the shearwaters provide an alternative source of food and when they're there, why would the feral cats bother taking going into your traps? Is it more controversial trying to, to trap and cull cats than some other other animals, given that they're, you know, domesticated? Yeah, I think many people have a very close emotional relationship with cats, and they're amazing animals. They're really attractive. They're incredibly efficient, impressive animals. It's just that they're really in the wrong place in our bushlands, mm. and they're very well adapted. They're found right in our really remote forests of Victoria and elsewhere through the deserts of Australia as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember once being at the um, part of Central Australia, sort of an iconic spot there, and camping. And it was, you know, we're coming into a really big drought, and all the cats were coming in. And it was probably the most intimidating time of my life because there was just hundreds of them around, um, I, I don't know the Aboriginal name for it, the Devil's Marbles there. And I remember just being gobsmacked how many cats there actually were. I mean, compared to, say, the, the feral problem in Central Australia with this vast tracts of land um, compared to in Victoria, how are we going with managing them? Like, do we have... Are we doing well down here compared to other places? Or um, Managing cats anywhere can be quite difficult. It's probably more challenging around areas where there's a lot... Um, of overlap between urban and natural areas because you've got people's pet cats and they also provide a source of immigration back into the feral population mm. which is why we really advocate for things like cat curfews um, yeah and there's some challenges in Victoria to do with the techniques you're allowed to use and um, the fact that cats are listed under the Domestic Animals Act rather than as a pest animal um, so, so does the problem really extend right into um, heavily populated urban areas of Melbourne? Because some other cities around the world, I mean, Jakarta comes to mind as a place I've been to where there are feral cats everywhere, all around the streets. And I mean, they've got a much larger human population as well. But in the urban environment here in Melbourne, for example, is the problem quite significant? Yeah, I think so. And also on the sort of rural farmland margins of towns as well. Um, they reckon that you can get up to 30 times more cats in urban areas than because there's a lot of food that they're mm. able to scavenge and take up um, from cat food <laughs> down to all sorts of other things. Kebab vans and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dr. Bronwyn Haradsky is with us. We're talking about feral cats and feral foxes. So you're going out and you're putting collars, collars on on animals. You've got cameras placed in different places. Maybe tell us what you're doing. And I suppose I'm interested in what you're seeing. Like, have you seen the kind of renowned big black cats and so forth <laughs> in your cameras? Or you know, what are you finding when you when you're looking back at the footage? Uh, so I've never seen a panther, though I've met someone who says they have. Um, however, I have met five five and a half kilogram feral cats, big black ones, um, and stripy tabbies out in the forest of the Otway Ranges. So for my PhD, I was doing a lot of field work looking at the interactions between invasive predators, so foxes and feral cats, and fire. So it's not that cats and foxes operate as a single threatening process. They can interact with other threats to our wildlife. For example, when you get fire and there's a loss of understory cover, native animals are very exposed and so the predators can potentially come in and clean it up. So I've just published a paper where we found a five-fold increase in invasive predator occurrence after a, bush, after a prescribed burn in a part of the Otway Ranges and changes in fox diet associated with that and greater predation of medium-sized native mammals, things like bandicoots that are traditionally very vulnerable mm. to um, 
these predators. Uh, so, yeah, I've been using GPS collars to track where foxes go and the um, scale of the landscape that they're using, the different habitat types, um, how they're moving between our forest and our farmland and our town landscapes so that there's not really so much a town fox and a forest fox. Um, they're often the same individuals. They're travelling six, seven kilometres through wow. their home range in an evening. Um, using cameras to survey which parts of the landscape and essentially finding that they're everywhere. They're in long unburnt forest, rainforest gullies, also dry heathland. Um, and now for my postdoctoral research, I'm um, building a simulation model. So it's to do with developing more strategic ways of managing predators because both cats and foxes are capable of reproducing very quickly so that although you can kill one individual there's a lot of young coming through the population and recruiting back into it so we really need to be targeting where and when we're controlling to protect our most vulnerable native species and who's responsible for for these councils parks and wildlife like who who's responsible for managing um, I suppose uh, foxes and cats. You said that if you've got foxes on your property, you need to do something. But what if the foxes are living in the parks nearby and then coming onto your property? I mean, who's, who's so cross tenure management can be takes a lot of coordination and effort. And we know that it's, for example. With farming, it can be very ineffective if one farmer attempts to control foxes, but the farmers on the adjacent properties don't. We really need to be coordinating across different private properties and across land tenures, so between national parks and private property. Um, yeah, obviously the responsibility varies depending on where you are in the landscape. So how are we going with that coordination? I think in some parts of... Victoria and Australia, we're doing very well. Other parts, there's definitely scope for improving it. Um, and some of that's going to involve some legislative updating as well as concerted effort from all the different parties involved. Has the problem with, with feral cats been driven, I suppose, at least initially with irresponsible pet ownership and people not really being aware or taking enough controls to make sure their cats are neutered and, and stay around the house, particularly in sort of nighttime hours and that sort of thing? So feral cats were introduced to Australia with European settlement um, and they spread very rapidly across the continent. So they're now found across 99.8% of Australia um, and that would have originally come in with farm cats and people wanted them to control things like rabbits and rodents mm. so they were deliberately introducing them but they continue to be subsidised by escaping animals from domestic populations and so uh, microchipping and registering your cat and desexing it can really help reduce this issue. But do you, I mean, what's happening at, at Philip Bond is my understand is that really it's a night curfew and if your cat breaks that curfew then um, you after a while that's it, your cat doesn't get returned to you. So we're getting in some areas some pretty uh, uh, strict rules. Uh, do you think that we're going to start to see rules like that go to other councils as well or do you have an insight into that? I know for example the Shire of Yarra Rangers has brought in a 24 hour cat curfew so your cat has to remain on your property 24 hours a day um, which makes it much easier in terms of regulating um, cat management across bushland uh, rural urban interfaces um, and yeah I must say I hope that extends further across both for the sake of people's pet cats and our wildlife. Time to go into the cat enclosure business, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in. It's um, really good to hear the work that you're doing and all the best with it and um, keep us updated. Thanks very much for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.